0: Good morning, Evergreen. If you'd open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. I'll be reading starting in verse 6, but our text this morning is verses 8 through 13. Just as the serpent said, Adam and Eve would have their eyes opened. But what do they see? With this advance of knowledge that they've gained, what do they now know that they didn't know before? Which is especially concerning when we think about the world that Jesus came into and the world which the prophets described. Isaiah chapter 9 says that this world was a land of darkness that God was going to send his great light into. Jesus, when he speaks about his listeners in Mark chapter 4, he says he gives parables to people who have eyes to see but cannot see, ears to hear but who cannot hear. If we were looking at last week, seeing how sinners fall and how they fell, What we're getting at in this text is the very beginning of the effects of that fall. The effects of that fall being the condition which we all find ourselves in, which is original sin, which is the topic of the sermon this morning. Let us read, starting in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the, woman, then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And what we have here is really God's interrogation of Adam and Eve. And in verse 8, it's probably one of the more metaphorical translations that I've seen the SV take. That we see that when God comes onto the scene, and he's not been present on the scene in verses 1 through 7, when he finally comes, we see that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In that, we have the picture. ...of God, it seems like, strolling through the garden. Maybe in the evening. But that doesn't, I think, really capture the whole picture here. Because the picture that we're given... ...is of Adam and Eve hiding. The actual, maybe a more literal translation of this verse is that they heard in the sense of they listened. And sometimes it's even translated the irony here of obey. That they obeyed the Lord's voice, the sound of the Lord walking through the garden. And even walking there is more of a sense of coming in. And when he comes into the garden, it says, in the cool of the day. And even there is this is a really strange phrase, talking about the wind of the day or the spirit of the day. Whatever is going on here, we don't know exactly how to translate it in a certain sense. I gave you that literal translation that they listen to the sound of his voice or really his voice coming into the garden in the wind of the day. What's obvious here is that God. Is now present on the scene. What they hear is God coming into the garden. The reason why I think it's better a voice is because we see it's what he does as soon as he comes into the garden. It's as if a wind blows over the garden and they hear a voice crying out, where are you? And they're in the middle of the garden when this happens, and what do they do? They take refuge in the middle of the trees, trying to hide themselves further than they've already done and trying to cover themselves. What's going on here is an interrogation scene. You know, if you're going to figure out what a text says, maybe the surest way to figure out what the point of a text is is by looking for what's repeated over and over again. And between chapters 2 and 3, we get five times God's command being repeated. God gives his command directly to Adam three times not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good of good and evil. And even Adamant, or rather the serpent and Eve interact with that, even though they might twist that command a little bit. The focus of this entire scene when it comes to the fall is man's response to God's command. And what is being exposed in God's interrogation is what they did with that command. Which is something we already know. We know that they took an aid of it. That they both broke God's explicit commandment. Despite all the blessings God had provided. Despite the encouragements to obedience. And how God's interrogation scene is exposing their sin. We are getting, really, the information directly from the horse's mouth. That's a weird phrase, isn't it? Directly from the horse's mouth. It comes from a horse racing scene in the early 1900s, I think, is the, or rather late 1800s is the first time that we actually see it. That if you really want to know the information about who's going to win the race, it's best to know and get the best most direct source of information. Or rather the direct source of information is going to be the one that's most trustworthy. That directly from the horse's mouth means that you can't really trust the rider or the spectators. If you really want to know who's going to win, you got to ask the horse, which I'm not sure exactly where that comes from either. But that's what God's doing. God, in exposing the sinfulness of sin and the sin of these sinners, goes to the sinner themselves and lets them expose themselves. And the expose happens not through their direct command because they actually evade responsibility. The expose happens in two words that I'm thankful that they already rhyme, so I don't have to come up with a rhyme. Their shame and their blame. That's what God does here. That's the effects of the fall that become immediately evident when we witness man after they ate. For in verse 7, we see that the one promise of the devil when they sinned, one promise came true. Satan had promised them that they will not die, for God knows that when you eat of the fruit, that your eyes will be opened. And what happened in verse 7, but that their eyes were opened. But what did they know? What information was exposed to them? The information that's exposed to them is that they're naked. And they sought to cover it up. What is happening here is they are being exposed and their eyes are opened to the guilt of their sin. This is the thing which we all experience. The guilt and the corruption of sin even though we try to evade it constantly. And what do we see in this, in their shame? Their shame is their own tacit confession of their guilt. And God asks them the question. He seeks after man and says to him, where are you? This is not a question seeking information in the sense of God did not know where that they were. God is omniscient. God knows all things. And by the way, Adam doesn't take it that way either. For when God asks, where are you? Adam does not say, oh, I'm behind this tree in the middle of the garden. Or I'm behind this covering that I've made for myself. Adam gives him the answer that God is looking for in part. Why is God asking this question? He's asking it to elicit a confession out of Adam. It's just like when God later asked in Genesis 4, verse, verse 9, when God asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? God is not asking where Abel is in the sense of he doesn't know. He's asking him to elicit a confession of what he knows to be true. See, the type of knowledge that man gained was... it kind of an artificial knowledge. Satan had promised him the advance of knowledge. But in consequence to man's disobedience to God's word, he doesn't gain a knowledge of more facts, more information. What he actually does is he gains a suppression of the truth. What he now knows Is guilt. What he now knows is good and evil by experience. And what he does with that information is he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. But a confession is not what God gets when he asks that question. He asks him, where are you? And notice what Adam's response is. Adam said, I listened to the voice of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What does Adam confess? He does not confess his guilt He does not divulge that he broke God's commandment, but he does divulge that he really did break God's commandment. Because he knows something. He knows his guilt. What he confesses to is not his actual guilt, but his sense of shame. His sense of shame that he is hiding from God. God's voice, God's presence, which before brought him comfort, knowing that he was a friend of God, now that he knows that he's broken God's command, he understands what he heard. God's voice had said, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, what? You will surely die. He feels the shame of it. It's this sense of shame and guilt which we know is a problem in our lives. In modern psychology, the solution rather, that my, modern psychology presents to us is to n- deny our guilt, to treat our shame through sh- therapy. And listen to, this, this is uh, Her- uh, Harold Kushner, a Jewish rabbi, speaking about the Bible's definition of sin. He says that under the Bible's definition of sin, our lives will be dominated by feelings of guilt and fear, guilt for the mistakes that we've made, and fear of making yet another one. And guilt and fear do not bring out the best in anyone. They drain the joy out of life and make us unpleasant companions. The problem here that he sees is that the, under biblical definitions of sin, the psychological effect it has on people is to make them feel guilty, ashamed of their, what they've done in the past and what they might do in the future. In that this shame is the problem that needs to be dealt with. That our shame is merely a psychosis, not reflective of reality. But that's actually the opposite of reality. Our sense of shame is a moral awareness and the quieting of our conscience does not lead to liberation, but to further degradation. This is why, as Christians, and especially as the church, we have to avoid, really, two errors. Not speaking of sin, and not speaking about Grace. You know, there are many churches probably in our area that avoid the topic of sin because of the very reason that we're talking about this morning, what we see in Adam and Eve, which is when we talk about sin, what it causes in sinners is a sense of guilt and a sense of shame, and no one likes feeling that. And our gut reaction to that is not to acknowledge our sin, but to hide from it out of the sense of shame that we have. And when we don't talk about sin, the problem with that is we might avoid the consequences of guilt. Dr. Kushner was right about the psychosis of it. Not the psychosis in the sense that it's not true, but the effect that a guilty and shameful conscience does lead to a joyous, joyless life. And being some around someone who's constantly ashamed of their behavior and feels guilty is draining. The thing is, is the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we deal with our guilt? What's the Bible's solution to our guilt? The Bible's solution is something radically different. It's not ignoring sin, not talking about it, and just assuming that people understand that they are guilty. The Bible's answer is to give us God's law that acts as a mirror which sinners can look at themselves and see their great need of salvation. And we have our sin exposed to us knowing also what God's word reveals, which is God's character, that if we confess our sins, God will forgive us because he's made a provision for our sins in Christ. one of the problems of the church today is that we don't talk about sin. And when we don't talk about sin, we gut the gospel of God's free grace. We gut the need that sinners have of Jesus Christ. For why is it good news that Jesus died for sinners if sin really isn't worthy of dying for? The reality is, and what every sinner needs to know, is that the wages of their sin is death. And the wages of sin is death not because our sins are not really that big of a deal. God does not address the sin of Adam and Eve as their mere mistakes even though that's how we often like to speak of our sins, in an evasion of the responsibility. What we want to do is suppress that shame. But the Bible actually wants to unearth that shame and tells us what to do with it. But isn't it interesting that when we have our sin exposed, what we often do is hide? We might not hide behind trees in God's presence. Maybe you might not think you're that dumb. But how often in church do we not confess our sins? Do we live hypocritical lives, putting up a front for other people, saying that we're basically good people? That's why we're Christians. That we don't really have anything to hide. Maybe we're Willing to confess our sins in private, not out loud to God in maybe our closet. But always unwilling to confess our sins to one another. Lest they figure out who we are and our shame is exposed to them that we might possibly need a savior as well. I think we hide our sin more than we'd like to admit. We should not be ashamed in the sense that when we confess our sins to one another, that we're going to be ashamed in that it's brought up as if that's new information to gospel believers. We should be willing to shame ourselves to humiliate ourselves, or maybe the biblical word, to humble ourselves. Before the living God, before each other, humble lives, confessing our sins to the sinners that we are seeking, letting them know that we are sinners also in need of a savior. What happens with sinners, ironically, is those who are given the basic command to obey God, to live in fear of God instead of fear of man, which is the beginning of wisdom, ironically, their experience of God is fear. Still, they don't escape that. But what they fear is no longer fear that causes them to live in obedience of God, but fear of God. What they experience is fear rather than fellowship. And their hiding reflects that they are guilty. That's one way that God exposes their sin. But then he gets more, um, he puts his finger on the issue a little bit closer to the heart of it. He says explicitly in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Once again, these are not questions that God is seeking information. God knows everything. And Adam's response once again shows The same kind of metaphorical or rather rhetorical way that he's understanding the question. But what's Adam's response once he's uncovered and exposed before God? Well, his response is to blame. And by blaming, he is fleeing his responsibilities. Look at what he says. He says that the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Adam is confessing, isn't he? He's confessing to something that's true, even. And yet, even though all the words in this statement are true, he's still suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Adam looks here a lot more like he's made in the image of the devil than he is in the image of God. Where's the love for truth that Adam would be created with, being God's image? No, instead, he uses subtlety, taking the truth and twisting it. And the emphasis is very clear. He fronts it who he thinks is truly responsible the woman. She is the one who gave me the fruit. I just simply ate it. But he's not only blaming the woman. He says that it's the woman who you gave to me. Who's getting blame? Who's bearing the responsibility from Adam's perspective? Everyone else but himself. And the woman is no better. For when he asks the question, what have you done? in eating the fruit, in giving it to your husband. She just says, once again, a half-truth. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Who does she blame? The devil made me do it. You see, when we think about sin and the causes and the effects of sin in the human life, A key term for understanding it is one of alienation. There's been a separation of sorts. And this separation applies in every facet of man's relationships. In his shame, it's almost as if he's separated from himself. Not at peace with himself. At war, in turmoil. And that turmoil is real and it does cause havoc in human life but that havoc is a symptom of the guilt that is true but that alienation is not just with ourselves but it's between those who god has created us to be in fellowship with in fellowship with each other adam was just a few verses ago Praising God for granting him a a companion who is his equal. Who is especially fit for himself. Yet now here, he blames God for giving giving her to him. And not only is his relationship with others severed, but his relationship with God himself is broken down. Where before he was friends with God, now he views God as his enemy. And once again, this is also reflective of reality, isn't it? Guilt and the corruption that's happened because of sin is reflected in reality. Reflected between people, and reflected between God. The reality is, is Adam feels that God is that he's at enmity with God because he has broken God's commandments. Because he really does understand that God will punish sin, and his strategy is to blame who's actually responsible for sin in the final analysis we have no one to blame but ourselves you know there's we could when we think about sin and about why it happens we know there's a context for everything that there's situations that might push us and lead us into a certain direction. But a context does not explain why we do something. It's just a context in which it happened. We talk about people who are born into a bad environment without a father figure in the home. And we can see certain predictors of bad behavior. And yet it doesn't explain why they succumb to the temptations, only that they were pushed in a certain direction. And if we go beyond context, and we look at motivations to explain actions, even then we don't get to the heart of the problem, because... Even if we are motivated towards a wrong choice, our motivations do not explain why we succumb to those motivations. Our motivations ultimately aren't the cause, the root of the issue. And if we dig down even deeper, the cause oftentimes leads us to where we were at last week. Which is, why do we ultimately sin? Because the heart wants what it wants. Sometimes we know that cause, and sometimes we don't. You know, it's interesting to me that when we think about blame, that this happens in every realm of society. There's this strange world of Nazi accountability structures. There's In the Nuremberg Trials, we see that in the Nazi order of command in the hierarchy, it seems as if everyone's receiving orders, but it seems like no one gave them. The reason why I say that is because by universal testimony, the Nazi Nazi extermination programs were accomplished under the cloak of firm authority but equally universal was the testimony that it was always by someone else's authority. When questioned, the medical people were questioned, they claimed to be working at the behest of people of the law. And when the government, uh, the government stated that the doctors were making their own professional decisions, lower officials invoked the, directors, the directives from superiors Higher officials claimed to be, uh, claimed that their subordinates were always exceeding their warrants. It seemed as if all things were done in the name of the Fuhrer, and yet the Fuhrer's signature was not on any of the orders. There's a constant blame shifting that is universal to humanity. And I wish I could say that I was accepted, an exception from that rule. You know, just this morning, I see what my gut reaction is when my sin is exposed. If someone comes up and asks me, hey, have you done X activity? Or have you rather failed to do X activity? My first response is to make up an excuse. TO SAY WHY I'M NOT PERSONALLY RESPONSIBLE, BUT THAT IT'S MY CIRCUMSTANCES. OR IT'S SOMEONE ELSE. IT'S NEVER US. DON'T WE SEE THIS IN OUR CHILDREN? WHEN YOU ASK THE SAME QUESTION, WHERE WERE YOU TODAY? WHEN THEY COME HOME LATE, PAST THEIR CURFEW? Where were you? What were you out doing? And what's the thing that you normally get? A list of excuses, shifting blame, whatever you can do to make sure that responsibility is located not on us, but elsewhere. What should we do as Christians? We should recognize what James 2 says. That each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We cannot say, James 2.13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted... I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be t- tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. And not only that, but 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 tells us that no temptation has overtaken us, except that what is that which is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be. Tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The reality is, when it comes to the responsibility of sin, it's always in the actor. The devil doesn't make anyone do anything. His temptations... His tests are to bring motivating factors, set up circumstances in which might make something appealing to us. But the fact that it's appealing to us is not, not even what ultimately does that causes the action. We're ultimately responsible when we make the action, when we think the thought, when we do the deed, when we say the word. The devil can't make anyone sin. Eve was wrong about that. God does not tempt anyone with evil. There's shame. There's blame. So what can they actually see? Ultimately, what they see is original sin. What they see is their culpability for breaking God's commandment. And with this, their eyes are opened. And their whole nature is corrupt. What we see in Adam and Eve is that they're indisposed at this point. They're disabled. They're made opposite to all that is spiritual good. When we talk about original sin, we're not talking about Adam's original sin. I understand that's a little confusing. We're not talking about the first sin, but we're talking about something that every human being has, which is guilt for Adam's sin and the corruption that proceeds from it. What we're talking about when we say that we believe in original sin is that we are just like Adam after the fall, not before it. That when human beings fell, they lost communion with God. And they were made liable by God's curse to all the miseries of this life. When we talk about original sin, we are saying that by nature, we are no longer children of God bearing his reflection, but rather children of wrath. What we're talking about is bad news. What can they see? All they can see at this point is God's judgment. And yet they don't think to ask themselves, why is God seeking them out? Yes, it's to get an answer. Yes, it is for judgment. But if that was the only thing God was coming to do, he would do the same thing towards them, what he did towards the serpent. God's not asking Satan any questions here. The only thing he gives Satan is the judgment and the curse. What he's trying to provoke in them is a confession of their sin. What they can no longer see after the fall is God's goodness. What they can no longer see is God's heart of forgiveness towards sinners. The reason why they hide is because they live in fear of God's judgment, and that's the only thing that they can see. What is revealed to us in the Gospel? Well, what's revealed to us in the Gospel is God's plan his plan that reflects who God truly is, if we could see him for who he is, which is a God who loves sinners, who sent his son to the cross to die for sinners. What's revealed, though, in the gospel is not some turn in God's personality that he makes some point later on. For Ephesians chapter 1 tells us That blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. When did God love sinners? Before they even sinned. What we have in the gospel is a revelation of that plan, a plan that took place in history past, rather, eternity past. But God's heart towards sinners is to elicit a confession of guilt that they might receive forgiveness. The problem is, is, when, our guilt is when our guilt is exposed, we don't turn to God. We don't confess our sins. We don't do the hard work of uh, enduring the shame of having our sins exposed, of going through repentance. This is why Second Corinthians chapter 4 tells us that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Their eyes were opened in a certain sense, and yet their eyes were closed. Blinded to God's goodness, they only see their shame blinded to God's heart of forgiveness towards sinners. They only have the sense of guilt. This is what we should expect when we preach the gospel to people. We don't leave out sin because we want to reveal their guilt. We want to expose the shame To show them what to do with it. But we should not be surprised at rejection at that point either. Because we know that the gospel here, we're told in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that it's veiled to those who are perishing. Why can't they see it? What do they not see? They don't see God's goodness. All they see is their guilt and their shame, and they seek to hide. You know what happens when you expose the sin of sinners? They run. They either run or they fight. They get angry and they attack whoever's closest to them. But there's a second problem that maybe. ...that you've also encountered in your churches that you've grown up in. Which is, when we only focus on the guilt and the shame of sin... ...what are we left with? We're left with the same view of God... ...that everyone has. That he's angry, maniacal... ...that he doesn't love sinners. What we have in the gospel is God's heart towards sinners. We can't talk about the shame and guilt without his grace. It's one thing if you can't see his grace, it's another thing to ignore it. To do that is still to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. To do that is to leave ourselves without excuse, yes, but without hope as well. We must never forget either. Our sin, our guilt, our bad condition, our hopelessness, and yet not see God's grace. We must see both when we read God's word. We must see that we in ourselves have our foolish hearts darkened. That our thinking is futile. That we're dumb when it comes to our natural condition. For Psalm 90, 139 tells us about our condition. That you know, O oh Lord, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from a thought. From afar, you search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave that is, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is at light with you. God knows everything and is everywhere. And we cannot escape his presence or hide from him. And we look at Adam and Eve and see, that's so dumb. But this exposing for us that we know who God is, it's at the same time, in Psalm 139, it's not bad news for David. Because he sees who God is. He sees the gospel. That's what he beholds. He sees what the gospel reveals to sinners that he is a savior of sinners. That's who the good news is good for. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us, not just our sin. Not just our need, but also the heart of our God. May we read your word and be convinced, not just of the sinfulness of sin, but also of your goodness, of your love, of your heart towards us. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.